Thank you again, worship team. Thank you again to all of us for, for, for worshiping together. Amen? Isn't it great to worship God together? What a great thing. And, and uh, we have a God who is worth worshiping. Take a deep breath, because today we're going to go a little bit deep. Is that all right? I promise you today that after we go down and we get a little bit deep, we'll come back to the surface for some air by the end of the, of the, of the message. But I think, it's going to, I think you'll be fascinated if you stick with it uh, throughout what we're de- uh, dealing with today. With the, the kids singing program a couple of weeks ago and then with Mother's Day last week, it's, it seems like it's been a long time since we were in Daniel 11, hasn't it? It's been three weeks since we were in Daniel 11. But if you remember back... Uh, Two, three weeks uh, before today, in Daniel 11, we had the vision of the immediate future. And by that, I mean the, the future that was immediate for Daniel. So starting with King Darius and working his way all the way up to, uh, to Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and this, this wonderful vision because it had 135 prophetic predictions. And then for us, we get to look back at that and we saw that every single one of those predictions came true to a T. Anyone else here was impressed by what God did through that vision to Daniel? I don't know about you, but that really impressed me. And uh, what, a, what an awesome thing. Now we are in the second portion of Daniel chapter 11, and we're going to see what we call the vision of the end of time. The vision of the end of time. So now we're, we'll end up fast forwarding, and we'll see the predictions of things that have not yet come to, to pass. Now, when we think about that, it's because we have seen the prophecies come true in Daniel 11 through the first half of the chapter that we're able to have the confidence that all of the things that God said will happen will indeed happen. Because he's going to say some pretty fantastic things in here. And so for us to believe in them would be very difficult except for the fact that we just saw God prove his power over and over again. Amen? And so we see that, and, and, and so that's where we're, we're coming to in the vision of the end of times. So let's pick, off, let, uh, pick up where we left off. Let's actually go to Daniel chapter 11 and, and go to verse 35, which was the last verse that we read three weeks ago, to pick up where we left off. And he was talking about the persecution that was going to take place against the Jews. And in verse 35 of chapter 11, we read this, And some of those of understanding shall fall. So even the believers, those who were, who were genuine believers, they were going to fall. Why? To refine them, to purify them and make them white until the, end, or until the time of the end. Because it is still for the appointed time. Now, I've read some common commentaries that said, well, most of the predictions of Daniel 11 came true. But since they didn't all come true, you really can't trust in it. And when you start looking into detail, they say, well, all the way up through verse 35 took place. But... But everything from 35, uh, it's hard to fit in anything into that. And I'm thinking, uh, of course not, because this is telling us about things that have not yet happened. He, in fact, in this verse, what do we read? We read, until the time of the end. He's saying, this is what happens until the time of the end. So now, where are we? We're dealing with the time of the end. And I, I hate to say it, but I think those commentators that are working so hard to discredit the Bible, instead of discrediting it, they should just read it. Right? And if they would just read it and actually see what it says, then, then they would and follow it. Of course, the things that take place from verse 36 on haven't happened yet because he said they haven't happened yet. So this, these, he's fast-forwarding us until the time of the end. 
Uh, you might remember when I mentioned the last vision that, that we said they'd come in four parts. So we had the introduction to the vision back in chapter 10 and uh, the vision of the glorious man. And then we had the vision of the immediate future, which is what we dealt with uh, three weeks ago. And, uh, and so all of that is past for us. That was future for them. And that took us from Darius to Antiochus Epiphanes, who became the first Antichrist, the, the foreshadow of the final, the Antichrist from Revelation. And so now we're into the vision of the end, and we're looking to the end of times, and then we'll have the conclusion later. So, yeah, so the, the question is, when we say that, that he's talking about the end times, what is he talking about? Well, I think this goes all the way back to, uh, to Daniel 9. And I know we're going a little deep here, but you might remember Israel had been unfaithful to God for 490 years, right? And God said, I want my Sabbaths back. So he said there's a 70-year period of captivity that they would go through. 70 years they would be in captivity. And if at the end of that they were not repentant, he would, he would multiply that by seven. It would become 490 years of punishment, right? So you're with me? This is yes? Okay, good. Just make it sure. So you're with me. And so then Daniel 9, he lays out those 490 years. And so we call them weeks. So those periods of seven years. So we had the first seven weeks or 49 years was from the decree to reconstruct the walls of Jerusalem to the event of the walls being restored. And just like God in every prophecy that he's ever inspired, it happened exactly as he said. Then he said there'd be 62 weeks or 434 years until the, the Messiah, the Prince, or the Christ you go to the day, and we studied that, to the day. Where does it take you to? To the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Then we have the event of the Messiah being cut off, and we know exactly what happened there. Jesus Christ died on the cross. From that point, there's an undetermined amount of time. It doesn't say how much. It's just marked by desolation, leading us to that final seven-year period, that final week of Daniel, where, where Daniel said, then the punishment for Israel will be done. No more punishment, only grace. No more condemnation, right? And so, so when, when Daniel then in chapter 11 starts referring to the time at the end, he's talking about that last seven-year period of time. That's what he's talking about. In Matthew 24, it's called the Great Tribulation. Those, that seven-year period of time. So Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 through 25 has already happened. Verse, thir verse 36 and on is, has not yet happened. So... So to think about it from the historical standpoint, this is the, the predictions that we saw take place in the first half of the chapter of all the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And, and we ended with the king of the north being Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the foreshadow of the Antichrist. He was the first Antichrist and a foreshadow of the Antichrist of the book of Revelation. By the way, we're going to see a little bit of that. We're going to see why he foreshadows and how he foreshadows him in the text today. He's the first, he's not the last. In fact, in 1 John, you don't have to turn there, I'll just throw it on the screen, but 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John wrote, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So how do we know that the Antichrist is coming? Well, we begin to see Antichrists, plural, showing up on the, the, on the, on the screen. Antichrist-type leaders in the world will remind us that the Antichrist is genuinely on his way. So now, starting in verse 36, that seemed like a long introduction to where we're at, but I think it's important to understand the context for us to understand this passage. Let's look, starting in verse 36. We'll read about the Antichrist. 
Then the king shall do according to his will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He, sh- he shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. Here we find, we find four descriptions of the Antichrist and in the verses that follow we'll find a few more. Uh, and, and we find several descriptions of this Antichrist that is coming. Here's the first one. He will not subject himself to any human authority. He will come in the, to the scene and he, and he will do according to his own will. In other words, he will not pay attention to what any, any law or any other system or any other group of countries. He's not going to do any, what any of those things say. He's going to do what he wants to do. He'll, he'll, he'll have no respect for any authorities above himself in the human sense. But it's also true in the divine sense. He will exalt himself above all divine authority. It says he will magnify himself above every god. So you see this pompous nature. The word pompous is used quite a bit to, to, to describe the words of the Antichrist. He's a, he speaks pompous things. He's going to put himself to the point where he doesn't care what, what God is being referred to. In fact, it goes on to say that he will blaspheme the God of gods. Not just gods, the God of gods. By the way, there's a big difference there. And you come to that point where you say, there's the God of gods. And he says... I put myself above that. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember in, in Isaiah when someone said, I will be like the Most High, I will exalt myself? Who is that? That was Lucifer, that was Satan. And we begin to see this human being being a physical representation of the same ideas that, that, God, can use, that God condemns Satan for. Does that make sense? We see this satanic power. The sad thing that we see in here. Is, is the fourth description, that he will succeed for a time. Now, the, the imagery that we get here is that he's going to succeed for a time, but because God is allowing it. Remember, God is using this period of time, this tribulation, to bring his people, Israel, back to himself, right? That's what it is about. And, and yet, he's going to think that he's stronger than God because he's beating God, right? And, and, and in his mind. And, he, and he's persecuting God's people and he's going to succeed for a time. But the Bible reminds us this is only because this was appointed by God himself, right? It's like wrestling with my brother Tom, right? And for anyone who's ever uh, seen my brother Tom wrestle, uh, uh, he's, he's a strong guy. He's an ox. He was state champion uh, t- uh, two years in a row. Uh, he, he's a fantastic wrestler. But many times people would think they were winning just before they got beat bad, right? In fact, my brother would oftentimes, he would start with his leg right out there. So any wrestler would seize that. We have a few wrestlers in here, right? Tom, Tom you, 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 if you saw me line up like this, what would you do? Shoot it. You'd shoot right for my leg. And he had this move and he had it down called the splatal. It was awesome. Because the person would think, oh, I see the leg. And they think they're winning. And within two to three seconds... They would be on their back with their legs spread and having a hard time walking the next day, right? It was just good. And, uh, and, and, I, and I see a little bit of that, but to a, a much greater extreme. Why? Because here's God saying, all right, I'm going to let you win. But remember, that's just because I'm letting you win, right? It's because I've got an end of this fight that is, is going to be amazing. And that's what, that's what the imagery that I get here when it says that he will succeed for a time but as it said, and he shall prosper until the wrath has been accomplished. Well, who's doing the wrath? That's God's accomplishment for what has 
for what has been determined shall be done. This is what God said would happen. And so he really has nothing for which to be cocky. Now, when it says that he'll succeed, what does that mean? He'll succeed to do what? He will succeed in his efforts to persecute God's people, to persecute Israel. So, well, what else do we learn about, about the Antichrist? Let's move on to verse 37. It says, He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. So here we see a few, a few more descriptions of the Antichrist. Uh, the fifth one being that he will abandon all religion. He will abandon all religion in the sense of, of the, the belief in God. He's going to exalt himself above them all and say, none of these religions are any good. I take the place of all of them. Also, it says that he will abandon the desire of women. Now, this I've looked in, in some commentaries, and there's a couple of ideas. What this idea, the desire of, of women... Uh, could mean. And uh, there are four possible meanings. Ignore the screen where it says three. There's four. Um, and, and here's what I found in, the, in the, the different commentaries that I looked up. One was that there's, it's the desire to bear the Messiah because in some contemporary writings, extra-biblical writings, they refer to that as the desire of women was to bear uh, the Messiah. There's another opinion that it's the goddess Tammuz. It's a uh, uh, it's a pagan goddess. There's also the idea that we're talking about misogyny, that there's a hatred towards women or a view that women are subhuman um, type of concept, or it could even be referring to homosexuality. Um, those are four possible meanings. I will tell you what, what my thoughts are. You can disagree with me on this and we'll still be friends on Facebook. Sounds good? <laughs> the, the desire to bear the Messiah, I don't think that that's what it's talking about. I think it's unlikely uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's not a Jew. And uh, the more obvious reason, he's not a woman. So um, I, don't th- I don't see that as what it is. Uh, um, I don't think that that's what it is. The other one is the, the pagan goddess Tammuz. I think that that one's unlikely as well. Um, uh, because Tammuz worship has faded. And it's po- is it possible that it'll come back? And, then, and, uh, and that he will reject it? It's possible. Highly unlikely. As far as misogyny, the, the idea that he would despise women or see them as subhuman, that, that is possible. I would say that's in the realm of possibility uh, because, for example, if he were Muslim, then uh, according to the Quran, the value of a woman is half of the value of a man. Seven times it says that in the Quran. Um, it, it, uh, it says, for example, that a woman's value is low enough that she is considered property of her, of her father or is married property of her husband. Now, by the way, we don't teach that. So if you're visiting with us, I'm just saying what, what the Muslims believe according to their doctrine, right? We don't believe in that. So is it possible that that's what it would mean to abandon the desire of women? It, it, it's possible. The other possibility of homosexuality, the, to abandon the desire of women in the sense of desiring the opposite sex, that's a possibility too. So it's probably some combination of these two that we see, uh, that we see obvious in here. So the, the, somewhere in those those bottom two would be possible and probable. Let's continue on verse 38. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Uh, Now here, I'm going to word this one twice, but I'll put it down the first just as it is in in the text. He will establish a God of fortresses. What does that mean? 
I think there's a, a couple of possibilities. It could mean that he's talking about establishing a new God that they've never had before. Saying, here's a new God, um, and this is, this is who you are to worship. Or it could just be the idea that, that since he has pushed down all religions, that he could be saying, the new religion is the religion of non-religion. Right? It's the religion of the military prowess, uh, and we see that in the context as well. I believe that that is the more likely um, likely answer in, in light of his emphasis on the anti-religion that we saw in the verses prior and as well as, as now. But if we go back to verse 38, we, we could see where it says, But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses. And how is it described? And a God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. It's all about things. And so I, I think that it's that military prowess that he's looking at. So the, the way I would word it is I would say that he will replace religion with militia and materialism. The militia and materialism. Now, why do I say that? I say the militia because uh, I say it, he, it, there's the military prowess of the fortresses, which are in, intended to, to show the strength of the military. And then as you look in the second half of the verse where it talks about honoring with gold and silver, precious stones and pleasant things, that's the, the materialism. And, uh, and so when we start seeing these antichrists pushing this kind of a thing, then we'll know we're, we're, we're working towards the end of times. Here's the thing. If I could step out of the text for just a moment and back into our culture for just a moment, um, this is the ethic that we're seeing taught in our, in our own schools, is it not? This is, the, this is really the ethic of, of Darwinism. I mean, think about it. What's the presupposition of Darwinism? The, the presupposition is that there is nothing beyond the material universe, right? So everything he decided was starting with the presupposition that everything that is, is can be explained by what is. There's nothing uh, outside of the box of the material universe, right? And so there's nothing beyond that, the material universe at all. By the way, that's the definition of materialism. The materialism is the base, is the, the, the belief that everything is the material world. So what begins to have meaning? Material things. Material things are the only things that have meaning. The ethic then becomes survival of the fittest. And you, you, you take not just Darwin, but any of the, of the, the atheists who have said, let's start with the same presupposition and say there is nothing beyond the material universe and apply it to whatever science you want, you come up with the same ethic. Right? Whether, you, whether you read Sigmund Freud, who said, let's, let's explain the soul, let's explain the psyche without the, the foundation of belief that there is a God, or whether it's Adolf Hitler, who said, let's apply it to economics and politics. If you look, the ethic always becomes the same. It becomes the survival of the fittest that military prowess, and he's going to be the one, not because he is morally superior to anyone, but because he's just going to show off his power. Does that make sense? That's the Antichrist. That's what, what he'll be like. And so these ideas um, that will be pushed by the Antichrist, the idea of get away from religion. Religion's harming you. If you could just get away from religion, deny all the gods of the past. Deny them. You know, let's make ourselves, let's turn ourselves into gods. By the way, does it work? It doesn't. In fact, when, you, when, when people raise themselves up to be gods, we actually turn into animals, don't we? I mean, that's, that we, in fact, that's what we're taught in schools, that we are nothing more than animals. 
you know, and I was watching this week on the, on the news and, and how they were arguing because science teachers were saying in the public school, school that humans are more than animals. And like, no, no, we have to say that we are nothing more than animals. We are only animals. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. By the way, God himself says sometimes we are animals. And remember when Paul was writing to Titus and he was talking about the Cretans and he said, the Cretans, one of their own poets, say that they're beasts. He says, and you know what? They're right. Strong words, right? But that's what happens when you take God out of the equation. We just start acting like animals. And we see that, I think, happening in our world today. Um, we also have, for example, in our own, our own country, what we call Darwin Day. How many of you knew that there was such thing as a Darwin Day? One? Really? There are two? Three? All right. Yeah, it, it celebrates that the fact that Charles Darwin was born on February 12, 1809. In 1995, the humanist community of Palo Alto, California, began an annual celebration. To make a long story short, it kind of grew from there. By 2015, Delaware's governor, Jack Martell, declared February 12th Charles Darwin Day, making Delaware the first state in America to formally mark the occasion. It went so quickly through, through the state congress that within the same year, then... Uh, the uh, House Representative Jim Hines from Connecticut brought it to Congress where House Resolution 67 was passed and now we celebrate Darwin Day as a nation. Think about that. This is a national holiday. And I'll tell you what, they, regardless of what they claim, we, as a nation, we celebrate not science, but the belief that science can liberate us from God. That's what Darwin Day is all about. Are you hearing me? And we're seeing the same ideas that we see the Antichrist pushing in the future are the ideas that we're starting to see in the culture. And as John said, you're going to see Antichrists in the last days. We're going to see people pushing these kinds of things in the last days. Let's continue on. Verse 39. Um, and, uh, and see. And, well, let me throw a side note out there too, by the way. This prediction is, is a, an incredible prediction because when it was written... Who was an atheist? Nobody. All the nations were religious. So even the idea that what's going to overall take, take over the world is going to be a belief in non-belief, uh, that was so foreign to them because everyone, every nation had their own gods and their success or failure, according to their opinions, was based on their belief in God or, or their, their, their loyalness to their gods and the strength of their gods. And, uh, and so here, Daniel's making a prediction that I'm sure many, when they originally thought... Now, no one's going to believe that. But yet we see it happening. What is the Antichrist going to do? Let's look at verse 39. It says, Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Again, here we see him talking about this foreign god. And, and uh, that has three potential meanings there, too. It could be that he's talking about the, the god of militia and materialism that he he, uh, he had just stated, like restating that, or it could be that he now replaces that void with a, a foreign God, a, a God that's foreign to the world, a God that they have never seen before, or possibly a God that is foreign to him that he uses for his own means. But you know what? Every single one of these can be traced to the same root, and that's Satan, right? The, the belief in no God whatsoever puts yourself as God, that's satanic. If, if it's a foreign God that has never been introduced to the world, that's satanic. If, it, if it's a foreign God, it's all satanic, and, and, and that's what he's going to push. And then in verse 40, it says, At the time 
of the end. The king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. I know at this point, we've been getting pretty deep, right? Are you still following me? All right, good. We'll just go a hair deeper, and then we'll start surfacing again. But look at this. When it talks about, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Talking about the Antichrist. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. There's a couple of of ideas here that we want to make sure we understand. Verse 40. First of all, the king of the south. Um, That one's pretty obvious because in all of the first half of the chapter, the king of the south always came from the area of Egypt. So that northeast Africa area. So we're going to see someone come from that area. But the king of the north is a little bit more complicated because in the text, grammatically, it could be the Antichrist himself. It could be saying that the king of the north is the Antichrist and then he's going to have this combat with the king of the south. Or it could be that the king of the north and the king of the south are going against, against the Antichrist, um, either one. I believe that it's the latter and the reason for that is because when I was studying a parallel prophecy in Ezekiel, chapter 38 and 39, you don't have to turn there, I'll show you the verse I'm going to use, but Ezekiel 38 and 39 gives another parallel prophecy, and this is what it says. It says, Then you will come from your place out of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. Now Gog is talking about the northern area, uh, Assyria or what we call today Russia. So that's a, a very possibility that the two would be coming against him in this passage as well. Now, let's look at verse 40 again. Um, and and see which that could mean. So it could be that the Egyptian king will attack the Antichrist, who is the king of the north, or that the Egyptian king and another northern king will attack the Antichrist. In either case, here's what the end result is. It says he'll overtake them with, uh, overtake multiple countries with a few exceptions. Verse 41, we read this. He shall also enter the glorious land. That's Israel. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Now, just to give us an idea what we're talking about here, this is uh, a satellite photo. Um, you'll see down in the bottom left, that darker area, that's dark because there are trees there. That's Egypt. You'll see the Sinai Peninsula. See those two little fingers? That Those are the two little fingers that come out of the Red Sea. You follow the one on the right up, you'll see that light blue water. That's the Dead Sea. You can follow the Jordan River right up to that little, little smaller lake up there. Um, that's the Sea of Galilee, where I asked Monica to marry me. So, so one of my favorite places there. So, so that's, um, that's where we're talking about. And he's going to go through the glorious land, which is Israel, which would be all of that area just a little bit east of the Jordan River towards the Mediterranean Sea. And, um, and we'll see that. But he does say specifically three, pla- three places are going to escape. Uh, first, he talks about Edom, which would be the, the area south of the, uh, the Dead Sea. We see, read about Moab, which would be uh, southeast of the Dead Sea. And then Ammon, which is east of the Jordan River. By the, that's specific, isn't it? And he's talking about, I mean, they didn't know how far into the future he was talking about. 
But we're talking thousands of years, over 2,000 years, right? And God is in such control over the details of the events that go on. He knows exactly what's going to happen over 2,000 years away. Isn't that amazing? What a God that we serve. No wonder we sing so joyously because we're singing to a real God. And think of all the religions in the world. What are they praying to? Verse 42. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. So I'm going to zoom out. That's the same map. I'm going to zoom out a little bit better so you, now you can see the entire Red Sea. You can see all of Egypt. He's going to come through the Promised Land. He's going to take over all of Egypt. He's also going to move westward, take Libya, and he's going to move south, take Ethiopia. Sudan did not exist at that time. And so uh, that's, that's the, the part of the world that he says that he's going to take over. So that northeastern section of, of Africa. And then what do we read in verse 44? I find this very interesting. Verse 44 says, But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury and destroy, or, and, and, destroy and annihilate many. So when we look at the map again, so he's going to hear some, some news from the north, some news from the east. And that's going to trouble him, so he's going to work his way back through Israel. And when he does, he is going to destroy and annihilate many. Does that look kind of familiar for those who have been with us? Do you remember when Antiochus Epiphanes did the exact same thing? And so here he was, he was attacking, he was going into Egypt, and he was working his way. And then, remember, he heard about the, the news of the ships from Cyprus. And so all, he has to go back now because he's dealing with, with Rome coming into the picture. And so he starts working his way back. And he's so angry at this that he just takes that out on the Jews on his way through. And that is, God is saying, this is a foreshadow of what the real, the final, the ultimate Antichrist is going to do in the future. So how many of you believe it's actually going to happen the way God said it would? I do. I believe it's going to happen exactly as God said it it would because he has not failed once. Not failed once. Verse 45. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. There's the good news. And all of this punishment is, ha, has an end. And we see what happens. It says that his, he's going to plant his tents in, between the seas there in, in the glorious land in, in Israel. And it says that he's going to die there. He's going to meet his end and no one's going to help him. And, and this really kind of wraps up the, 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 the prophecy of this. Starting in, in verse 1 of chapter 12, um, it becomes a poetic expression. It's actually written in, in, in Koine poetry. And so it, it's a poetic expression of everything. It expounds on what we've just done. Now, we've gone pretty deep, right? Anyone mind kind of take another breath, right? Shake it out if you need to. All right, well, let's start to resurface a little bit here. And so we're going to zoom out. Let's look at the poetic expression of the entire thing, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. So at that time, Michael... Remember Michael, the, the, the archangel. At that time, Markle, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was, was since there was a nation. 
even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. Hey, remember Michael, he's, he's tough. Remember even the, the, the glorious man saying, you know, only, only Michael could take me. Right? Only Michael is strong enough to take me. And what we find is that there's a negative side to this verse and a positive side to this verse. The negative side of this verse is that there's going to be a major conflict. There's this time of trouble like has never been seen before. Never been seen before. And it's going to be a terrible thing. There's going to be major conflict, major war, major death. But at the end of it all, what does it say? It says, your people shall be delivered. Your people shall be delivered. Now the question, does this mean every Jew who is a Jew by blood is going to be delivered? Not really. There's a stipulation here. What's the last phrase? It says, everyone who is found written in the book. Everyone who is found written in the book. This conveys the idea that God is keeping track. He's keeping a list of those who are going to be rescued and those who are not. He's got this list going. And, and, and those who are going to be spared, their names are written in the book. Those who are not going to be spared, their names are not written in that book. Isn't that, is that what you see? Is that what you read too? Keep your finger here. I, I'm going to take you to Revelation 20. Fast forward you to the very end of, uh, end of, the, of the Bible, very end of times. This is what John saw in his vision. He said, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Do you see the correlation here? See the correlation? It comes down to, there's two destinies, right? That's it. There's two destinies. Look what he says in, in verse 2 of Daniel 12. Go back to our, our main chapter. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. You know, why do you think that, that God went through all of this work to, to come up with, with hundreds of years of prophecy and reveal it to someone, had it sealed so that no one could tamper with it, so that all the world could say this was written before it happened. He goes through all of this work to do this. Why? Because he's about to say something that's very difficult for us to believe. And he wants to prove that it's believable. Does that make sense? And he, what he's saying is, death isn't the end. There's an eternal place for all of us. Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting judgment, everlasting contempt. Those are the only two options. I'll tell you what, this is pretty important, is it not? I mean, usually when something's important, we say, oh, this is a matter of what? Life and death. That doesn't fit here because life and death is small compared to this is a matter of eternal life, eternal death. 
Do you see the difference? This is, this, this is, is way more important than that. I had the opportunity to sit this week with, with a man who, who, if something doesn't change in his health, may meet his maker face to face much sooner than he had hoped. I could give him hope because this is true. Amen? Because there's something bigger than life or death. There's eternal life. Eternal contempt. I can't think of anything that would be more relevant for us today. But what's the application? I think the application is right in the poem itself. Verse 3, it says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. You remember what we learned a few weeks ago? The kids did a great job teaching us just a few weeks ago about the stars, just seeing the magnificence of God himself. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, in this, in this very same book, he was just like the Antichrist. He thought of himself and he looked, look who I am. I'm above any God. I'm above anyone. And his pride was finally broken and when God put him on the ground, made him live like an animal for seven years. And you remember what he said? After seven years, I'll, I'll show you. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to the heavens and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Saying, those who are wise are going to be like that. They're going to shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Applications, I think, are very simple. Those who are wise are going to do these two things. Number one, those who are wise will humble themselves to Almighty God. If you're wise, you look at all of these predictions that God gave and you say, He is who He said He is. And all I can do is submit. All I can do is humble myself, get on my knees, and just beg for mercy from God. Second thing, those who are wise, those who are wise will shine. How? By turning many to righteousness. We will be like the heavens that revealed God to, to Nebuchadnezzar. Our job is to reveal God to other people. If you can say, oh, I've accepted Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior, and I'm thankful for heaven, but I'm not really going to do anything to try and reach other people for God, then something is not right there. Does that make sense? Something is not right. If you actually believe what you say you believe, then it is going to change the way you live your lives. Right? If I told you, if you, I had a cure for cancer, but I didn't feel like sharing it with anybody, how would you feel about me? You'd be pretty upset, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's what we see. A wise person the only response to, to understanding who God is is to say, I have to humble myself to him and I have to show other people that I'm going to point them to the same thing. We don't save anybody according to these verses. We don't take anyone. We turn them. That means we, all we do is say, hey, look, man, this is God. We can't save anybody. We can't die on a cross. If we did, we'd be paying for our own sins, not for someone else's sins. We wouldn't be paying enough but we can point people to Christ. So by way of invitation, I just want to first ask, is there anyone here 
who would have to say in your heart of hearts, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I'm gonna, I'm, I want you to ask yourself in your heart of hearts, have you ever come to that point in your life where you humbled yourself and accepted Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior and humbled yourself to God? In Romans 10, verse 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To you, my application is that you can accept Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior right here, right now, right where you're sitting. In fact, in a moment, I'm, I'm going I'm to give a prayer, and, 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 uh, and there's no magic formula. There's no certain words, but I, I, if you would pray with me, I'm going to include those two concepts that we just found in God's Word. First is to accept that Jesus Christ is our Lord and say, Lord, Jesus, I want Jesus to be my Lord, my master, and Lord, I accept you as my master. I humble myself. I submit myself to you. And believe in their heart that God has raised them from the dead. The belief that God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross so he could pay for our sins, but that on the third day, and we celebrated every Resurrection Sunday, that, that he rose from the grave and he purchased a place for us and he paid for our sins once and for all. That's what we're going to be celebrating in just a few moments, too. Are you willing to believe that? Let's bow our heads for just a moment.